I think our thing that really makes the food scene in Tasmania is our proximity to the good food and the good wine. You know, we've got little ladies growing beautiful vegetables in West Hobart and things like that, like going to visit producers and farmers is really easy. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huxter. In the last 15 years, there have been key moments that have altered the path of Tasmania's culinary landscape. Some point to the opening of Mona, others to the throng of industry professionals looking to get out of the big cities and embrace a slower-paced life. But well-travelled and highly skilled local professionals have been the driving force that have not only shined a light on the extraordinary wine and produce of the Apple Isle, but created a dynamic and enticing dining scene. Alice Chug is the restaurant manager of Templo in Hobart. Alice, how are you going? Good, Anthony. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. The, Thanks for having me. The culinary scene's just really blossomed in Tasmania, particularly over the last five to ten years. What's it been like for you as a, a local and being a real driving force and part of that? Oh, it's been actually so amazing to see it change and to be kind of a part of that change. I remember my first kind of, I don't know, I suppose fancy restaurant job. I was 18 working at a place called Mark Four, which doesn't exist anymore. And there was like two good restaurants in Hobart to go to. Wow. Because, you know, the, it wasn't food-based tourism. It was, you know, business and more kind of, I suppose, nature-focused tourism for people wanting to hike and get into the wilderness. Yeah. But, you know, you fast forward, you know, 12 years to now and it's amazing. There's this like plethora of great venues to go to and, you know, you've got your pick of the bunch. It's it's really different uh, in Tasmania and it could be due to the fact that you're your own island and there's lots of amazing produce there. Yeah. How do you describe the food and restaurant scene of, of, of Tasmania? I don't know. I think it's it's kind of a community down here, I suppose. Like it's a little bit less competition than I suppose there could be in other states around Australia. But I think our the thing that really makes the food scene in Tasmania is our proximity to the good food and the good wine. You know, we've got little ladies growing beautiful vegetables in West Hobart, you know, 15 minutes away from the restaurant and things like that. Like going to visit producers and farmers is really easy. You know, you hop in the car, maybe an hour and a half, two hours max, and we can go to these incredible farms. And I think that people kind of expect that. Mm. in Tasmania, like having access to that kind of produce. But, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than everyone seems to be interested down here. Everyone's interested in where their produce comes from and where their meat is from and where the wine is from. I guess it gives it a real sense of uh, local identity then, what features in the restaurants. And you've been a part of many of the restaurants. uh, Yeah. In the last couple couple of, or last five to ten years. Yeah. Uh, Where did it all start for you? Where did you get interested in starting in the hospitality industry? Um, 
Well, I first got started in hospitality when I was about 16. I was, um, I did work experience at a restaurant. Um, and you know, it was mainly, I thought I wanted to be a chef. (laughs) I tell you what, my mind has certainly changed (laughs) over the last 15 years. Um, but I did work experience in a restaurant and then I ended up getting a job just as like a casual from that. Um, I just really liked the people when I was interested in food and, you know, I was underage then, so I wasn't, you know, the wine wasn't necessarily a focus for me at the time, but yeah, I just gradually kind of became more and more interested and realized that I was actually pretty good at it and then kind of decided that I wanted to push myself and work in some really good restaurants. And then I think the restaurant that I mentioned before, Mark Four, was where I really started to become interested in wine especially and food and wine matching, which is still something I love so much. And you've yeah, sorry, you've worked in restaurants like Ethos and Franklin and Yeah, yeah. So. Can you take us back to those early days and the early days of your career and um, what it was like working like with Ethos and what they were doing at, at the time? I feel like, um, in a way, Ethos kind of like spoiled me, gave me very high expectations of other venues to come because, you know, Ian did everything himself. Everything was done by hand and everything was so carefully thought out and curated and everything was sourced locally and as ethically produced as possible, which, you know, became my passion as well. But it was amazing. We were the only ones, you know, at that time kind of doing that. And then obviously Garages came on the scene and they were following a similar ethos, mm. for lack of a better word. But it was it was kind of really hard at the same time, you know, trying to preach to the people as to why, you know, these vegetables or these certain things were so special because, you know, a lot of people didn't, you know, really see the merit in beautiful vegetables at that time. But, you know, back then it was just two restaurants to go to in the city. (laughs) You mentioned how much the restaurants have changed and also the reasons why people go to Tasmania. What's been some of the challenges as, you know, front of house and running restaurants over the last decade with that transition and getting people to change their mindset about restaurants in Tasmania? Um, I think people just, you know, maybe didn't have lower expectations but maybe didn't know what to expect you know coming to Tasmania and you know ethos before we extended was quite a small small restaurant and you know turning turning people away and not having a good option as to where to send them alternatively was quite Mm. hard but then also things like um you know you'd have people who are quite wealthy and they'd want to come in and they'd want to spend a lot of money and we didn't have, you know, we didn't have that kind of wine list originally that, you know, people could drop a couple of hundred bucks on a bottle of wine like they wanted to do. But um, I don't know. I think it was just everyone was kind of learning, the tourists and us at the same mm. time as to what to expect from Tasmania. Um, I think for me the biggest, I suppose, hurdle was I was, you know, I was only 20 when Ethos opened and, you know, trying to be taken seriously as a young woman in the industry was <laughs> quite <laughs> difficult. What's been some of the influences on the way that have steered your your career and the way that it's gone? Um, 
I don't know, just uh, learning, I suppose, and just really wanting to be the best that I can be, which sounds super cheesy. But, um, <laughs> and uh, working with Chloe Proud, yeah. so we started working together, you know, in Ethos whenever that was, eight, nine years ago. Um, and, you know, she's still my best friend to this day. But the two of us just, I don't know, we wanted to create a warm and hospitable environment. And I think that's the thing that's kind of driven me. So having the knowledge, but also wanting people to feel welcome and comfortable in restaurants. We've all had those experiences in restaurants where it's not very comfortable and you do feel a little bit like, I don't know, you're in the way or someone's doing you a favour by serving you. So we just really wanted to, I don't know, get rid of that stigma and just be friendly and it's like you're welcoming someone into your home. Well, the restaurants in Tasmania really have that sense about them now and they do have that real connection to the local produce. Tell me about summer from a food perspective in Tasmania. What what does it mean to you? Oh, it's amazing. Like this time of the year is my favourite time of the year for food and spring as well. Like it's it's kind of um, almost like feast or famine throughout the year in Tasmania. You know, you've got that really awkward stretch in kind of winter and autumn where there's not a lot of vegetables available. If you are a restaurant that works seasonally, you know, you've got Mm. a hell of a lot of onions and lots of brassicas and not a lot else. <laughs> and, you know, working somewhere like Franklin, Ethos, Templo, restaurants that are driven by, like, the seasons, it's kind of really funny to see, you know, the boys slogging it out in the kitchen trying to think of something different to do with kale for the thousandth time and then, you know, come to this time of the year when it's just amazing abundance of, you know, peas and beans and all the really fun things. Tomatoes are about to come into season. It's just, you know, it's exciting. It kind of almost like refreshes you a little bit in the time of the year, which is generally the hardest and the busiest. You mentioned earlier that you came into the industry at an age um, where you weren't allowed to drink alcohol legally, um, but, <laughs> but, but it became your thing and you're, you know, one of Australia's best soms and restaurant managers. And, it's, and food and wine matching is a real passion of yours. Tell, tell us about the wine of Tasmania and how you integrate that in the menus of the various restaurants that you work, you've work you worked at. Yeah, so originally kind of Ethos started off as a mostly Tasmanian heavy wine list. There was some other stuff as well, like some French and Italian to balance it out, just fill the areas that Tasmania can't fill. But I spent a lot of time getting to know some of the Tassie producers just over, you know, years of supplying their wine. And there's mm. guys that I absolutely love and will always want their wine on any list that I write. But I think a lot of people have maybe a, I don't know, misconception of Tasmanian wine as, yes, there are some amazing small producers who are, you know, doing everything how you would hope they are. But there's also, there's, you know, the big kind of, contract winemakers not that there's anything wrong with that but you know people think that all Tasmanian wine is great because they see the really great stuff mm. but for me I suppose it's been finding those producers who I really love who are pretty much all small producer you know hands-on doing everything themselves and supporting them so I think particularly with the food kind of 
scene shifting a little bit and produce and everyone wants, you know, organically grown, you know, vegetables and fruit and less chemicals. I think that's a kind of trend that's being followed in the wine industry here as well, particularly with those smaller growers moving away from chemicals, but not so much full natural production. You've got a few guys doing that kind of thing here. Mm. But um, I think that's kind of, you know, the way that the wine is going in Tasmania and that's my personal passion, like minimal intervention wines. Um, I would always like to have a Tasmanian wine on a list above, you know, something imported or something from mainland Australia. But until quite recently, we just haven't had the variety, I suppose, there's only so much Tasmanian Pinot that you can have on a list. <laughs> well, people, a lot of people like to go on road trips to um, different wine regions like the Barossa or the Hunter Valley, yeah. and we speak of the region in that sense, but can you give us an idea of how wine is grown and, and the regions in Tasmania and what sort of example? Do you have any examples of wines that really stand out in the different regions there? Yeah, so, yeah, Port Tassie kind of, you know, you, you are known as like, Barossa Valley, Adelaide Hills, McLaren Vale, but Port Tassie kind of just gets lumped in its own, like Tasmania yeah. is the region itself. But there's amazing kind of like microclimates around the state and also, you know, different terroir, which obviously makes very different wines. But, you know, you've got the Piper's River region, so up in the northeast of the state, which is where the majority of the sparkling gets made. So things like um, House of Arras, Delamere, Mm. All at Clover Hill, all those guys are kind of in that same Piper's River region. Um, I love Delamere for sparkling in Tassie. I think it's like the best bang for your buck bottle of bubbles you can buy in the state. Always a sucker for Arras as well, but obviously that's (laughs) on the slightly more higher price point. Um, And then, you know, you've got the Tamar Valley, which is like kind of around the outskirts of... Launceston and so many vineyards in that kind of area you know you've got the Mm. big guys like Joseph Cromie that everyone knows then you've got smaller producers like Joe at Stony Rise who does Stony Rise and Holyman Mm. one of my favorite producers in the state and he's just built a beautiful swanky new cellar door which is really worth a visit but he makes you know excellent Pinot Noir and Chardonnay particularly but then has also been planting some kind of new fun varieties like Grunewald Lina and Trousseau, things that you don't see in Tasmania, let alone in Australia very much. Mm. And Ricky Evans from Tutan, Tasmania. So he kind of makes lots of different stuff, Riesling and Pinot predominantly in that area. And his wines are so excellent in a couple of tiers, so like a more entry-level kind of wine and then some more premium stuff and then you head towards Hobart and you get the Derwent Valley where you've got guys like Stefano Lubiana who are you know so well known around the country and they're producing beautiful um, biodynamically grown wines now Mm. and growing some really fun varietals as well which you don't really get to see out and about yet but they're doing Grunewald Liner and they've made some Blaufrankisch and wow. like that. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's kind of makes sense to grow those things in Tasmania. So hopefully they continue that and, you know, 
but they're also their sparkling is great. I do love their sparkling too. And then you have like the Coal River Valley, which is the stretch out towards Richmond, kind of on the way to the airport there. And kind of similar to the Tamar Valley, you get lots of different varietals grown in that area. That's where the main Frogmore Creek vineyard is. Um, and lots of tiny little producers as well. And that's where you have a lot of the guys who are just super small. And basically they just grow the grapes and then sell their grapes to other like big wineries and big producers. So, you know, like Hardee's buy most of their fruit for their sparkling from Tasmania and kind of all the big dogs do because it, you know, the Tasmanian fruit is a premium, I suppose. There's a real art and um, skill in matching food and wine. How do, how do you approach it? Um, it tastes everything. Like, you know, you have these ideas in your head of a wine's going to work well with a dish and sometimes it's so wrong. <laughs> we always, you know, we were at Ethos and at Franklin, we always tried the dishes with the wine and you think that something's going to work and it's actually so disgusting. <laughs> um, but just tasting and I suppose knowing what to try to match just comes from practice for lack of a better word and palate. So, you know, knowing that if something's kind of like salty and rich, you want something kind of fresh and acidic to kind of cut that. Or sometimes you want something kind of like oily and rich to go with it. It's, I don't know, almost like intuition for lack of a better word. But um, I, I like to keep it pretty fun as well. We challenge people a bit with our matches. At Franklin particularly, we kind of changed it up a lot. Like we always matched beers and sake as well and we never mm. we never followed a traditional <clears throat> sparkling white red sweet wine um with our matches it was kind of all over the place you could have a sake to start with a white wine a really heavily skin contact wine you might have red and then have a white again like it was just kind of all over the place just depending on whatever matched that dish specifically um and we kind of do the same at tempo we don't really follow any kind of recipe for the matches we just do whatever we think works well with the dishes so some nights you might not get a red wine at all it might be all whites and maybe an orange wine in there as well and then some nights there's a lot of reds it's just kind of it's just fun like we change it up a bit give people something that they may not expect and it's kind of a really good opportunity for people to try wines they might not normally order off a wine list themselves Franklin is a restaurant that got a lot of media attention and you spent uh, uh, quite a few years working there as well. What, what sort of impact did Franklin have? And sadly, it's not there anymore. But what, what impact did it have on the culinary scene in Tasmania? Oh, I, like, I worked at Franklin uh, on two occasions. So I worked there um, oh, probably within the first year and a half that they opened and then I was working there the last kind of six to seven months before it cl closed quite recently. Mm. And just to see how much the restaurant had changed and developed over that time was actually really lovely to see. But it's left a big hole in the hospitality scene in Hobart. Um, I think people kind of going in there and, you know, we've got this beautiful space and this 
beautiful fit out and the food's always excellent and the Forbes's wine list is just off the charts incredible. I think it just kind of put Tasmania on the map of the food scene as, yes, we can compete with the big cities. We've got mm. serious, you know, beautiful restaurant, you know, two chef's hats. Like, you know, we can compete, I think. And, you know, pushing the boundaries with food that they were serving, I think made other restaurants feel like they can do that too, I suppose. So, you know, the restaurants that opened in the time that Franklin opened, you know, Fico, Dye Maker, things like that, they mm. they kind of, you know, came at the perfect time. Franklin was the trailblazer. Mm. You're now at Templo. Can you tell us a bit about that? It's a tiny little spot, but um, very popular. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been at Templo since June after Franklin closed. I had a few months in between. But, yeah, tiny restaurant uh, on Patrick Street, just slightly on the outskirts of the CBD. We can most, well, pre-COVID, we'd seat, you know, 25, 26 people which if you see the wow. space, that's quite an impressive amount of people to fit in there. <laughs> You'd really be jammed in there. It was really cozy. Um, but a restaurant that I love and have dined at many times in Hobart, my partner used to work in the kitchen there. So I've spent a lot of time around those guys. But now we're currently maximum of 16 people, just with our, you know, the two square meter per person wow. rule which it's enough people to make the space feel comfortable and busy and fun. Um, but obviously it is a, yeah, a bit of a loss to lose those 10 seats, but we've changed recently post COVID to set menu only where we've always done a set menu and a la carte. Mm. So kind of modern Australian with Italian influences, but, space itself is just so beautiful and warm and we kind of just want to feel like you know people are in our home essentially so food is always really tasty using you know local seasonal produce ethical meat um and you know doing everything making everything by hand beautiful bread ricotta and things like that and i don't know we just want everything to be delicious and comforting and it's a really lovely space to work in. It's the only small restaurant I've ever worked in in my life. I've always worked in quite big spaces, you know, things people go out for a you know, cigarette in the middle of the meal, come back in and you try and greet them. And they're like, hey, I've been eating here for like two hours. But at Templo, I get to speak to every single person that walks in the door, which is so nice. And I do the wine matches for the whole room, which sometimes can be, you know. Wow. 16 people, but it can be interesting. <laughs> and everyone comes at once, so two two sittings a night, and then we do lunches a couple of days a week as well. If you were hosting some out-of-towners to Hobart for a week, where, where would you take them? What would be the ultimate food experience? If we're going to stick with just Hobart, I always tell people a week isn't enough. But if we're going to stick with just Hobart, um, I'd always go Pigeonhole Bakery for obvious reasons pastries great coffee maybe get a sandwich to take on a road trip um outside of food i'd always take people up the mountain for a walk which is always my favorite place to go 
need to eat at Dye Maker. Um, the food that they're doing now is so great. They're similar to Templo. We've gone to set menu only. Um, and also Kobe's little wine bar, which is in front of Dye Maker called Lucinda. Oh, really yes. Great wine list. Very dangerous. So you can spend a lot of money there. <laughs> um, and lovely snacks as well. Um, obviously, we go to Tom and Hugo's probably multiple times. <laughs> and the same thing, you know, Tom McHugo's is, everyone just calls it the pub. So in, you know, our friendship group and the hospitality industry in general, if you say, yep, let's go to the pub, there's never any question about which pub you mean. <laughs> it's <laughs> McHugo's. It's the home away from home. Um, great beers, really great wine. You can go and just have a palmy or a steak, or you can have some of Tom's beautiful vegetable dishes, which are always so crazy delicious and my favorite thing there mm-hmm. um where else would we go well i'd probably bring them to templo to be honest <laughs> um and out to the agrarian kitchen so mm-hmm. they're just doing lunch a couple of days a week now and they've got their little kiosk as well where you can get takeaways pastries and sandwiches and stuff and then set menu for lunch out there which is i got to go a couple of weeks ago and it was so great you mentioned that the loss of Franklin has left a big hole in the hospitality industry, but there's no doubt there's going to be a lot of uh, local um, and regional travel in Australia uh, over 2021. Um, what's your expectations? Is it, is it a real opportunity for Tasmania to sort of showcase what it can do to the rest of Australia? I think so. Like, you know, with our borders reopening within, you know, the last couple of months, it's been a lot busier than I thought it was going to be. Like we, you know, obviously because we're limited capacity, we've been full regardless. But I, the amount of people that, you know, we've turned away and the people who are in town and who want to go out and they want to eat, it's, um, and that's kind of also, you know, Franklin left a physical hole in terms of restaurant sizes and, you know, mm. they could fit you know, 100 people a night. So where's those, where are those 100 people going to go? Um I think it could be a very good opportunity for, you know, new restaurants, new bars. Um, I, and I obviously I know it's a scary time in the world right now with the uncertainty, but I think people are still going to come. People still want to travel and spend money and eat and have a good time. So I think there is a lot of opportunity here and, you know, hopefully some more, like I said, regional areas will get a bit of a taste like obviously with monophoma happens in hobart and launceston mm-hmm. now. Anyway, wow lonnie's like lonnie's cool things are happening um we spent a couple of days up there a few weeks ago and there's great restaurants opening really nice places to eat and it's actually just a beautiful city like you know it's always been hobart's kind of younger sister i suppose but I think there's a lot of opportunity in Launceston and even just in, you know, the country towns along the way. Why don't we have, you know, restaurants like Bray and things mm. like that that are out of the city? Um, you know, Agrarian's a great example, but realistically it's only 45 minutes out of the city. But I don't know. I think more things like that would be really great for Hobart. People are always travelling on the East Coast and driving around, so it'd be nice to have somewhere to 
send people when they're in the state? Well, I've uh, travelled around Tasmania a couple of times and enjoyed the hospitality of the restaurants and and the wineries, and it is extraordinary. And I think that you're going to have a great year um, given the circumstances. Alice, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Good luck with the, with the new year, and uh, we'll talk you. again soon. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPA community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.